Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 19 this morning. Acts chapter 19, as we continue in our series in this great book. We've been seeing so far through 18 chapters how the gospel bears fruit. By the way, just in case I forget at the end of the service, tonight, of course, we're going to be having that praise and potluck. So when the service is over, we do need some help setting up for tonight. And uh, Randy Newby is in charge of that. So Randy will tell you exactly what to do all the way in the back there. So he didn't know I was going to say that, but Randy, you're in charge of that, all right? Help Randy if you're uh, able to move tables and chairs. We greatly appreciate it. Acts chapter 19, let's pray and ask God's help. Father, thank you so much for your blessings to us, for these songs that we've sung, reminders of the gospel, your word that we've read, prayers that we've prayed. Father, we center them all on you. That's why we're here. We're here for your glory. We're here for your people to worship you, to magnify your name, to lift Jesus up. Make much of him in our hearts. Lord, we are ready to feast on your word once again. Help us now. Sanctify believers through it. Draw sinners to repentance and faith in Christ because of it. Lord, we know that you will do your work in spite of us. And we pray all of this in your glorious name. Amen. Last week, we wrapped up Paul's second missionary journey. And we see him quickly begin his third journey. Paul leaves the church at Antioch and heads west, revisiting many of the churches that he saw on that first and second trip. At the end of chapter 18, we had a brief pause in the story about Paul, and it shifts to a new man named Apollos. We see that Apollos was a very important man, very eloquent, very passionate. He was sharing Christ in a city called Ephesus, and there he received some doctrinal help from a married couple named Aquila and Priscilla. It was there that they encouraged him and built him up and he goes then to the city of Corinth, which is in the city, country of Greece today. And he made a, quite the impact there as well, sharing the gospel. And because of his ministry there, many people believed and the believers were strengthened. And that's how we concluded chapter 18. Apollos, a very important figure in the early church, especially in Ephesus and Corinth. But now we go back to chapter 19, and we're going to be there in verse 1, and we go back to what Paul is doing. And in verse 1 of chapter 19, it says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. What Paul is doing as he's journeying through now on his third trip, he's visiting all the places he's already seen on his way to the city of Ephesus. He stops by Iconium and Lystra and Derbe in the regions of Galatia, Galatia and Phrygia. And he goes towards Asia Minor where Ephesus is located. Ephesus, of course, is a very important city in the Roman Empire at this time. It's the third largest city at the time. Paul had been there once before, if you will remember. Midway through chapter 18, we saw he went and preached the gospel there, and the people begged him to stay. And his response to them was, 
I will return if the Lord wills. Well, the Lord must have willed because Paul finds himself back in the city of Ephesus. There he found some disciples. A disciple is a learner. It's a follower. It just doesn't mean a disciple of Jesus. It's just someone who's learning and following something. He sees these group of men, 12 in fact, we learn in a few verses, verse 7. And in verse 2, he says to them, when he encounters them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Of course, John the Baptist is long dead at this point. Remember, his head was cut off and served on a silver platter by a wicked king. John the Baptist called him out for his sexual immorality, and it cost him his life. But the disciples of John the Baptist continued on. John the Baptist was the prophesied one who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. The prophets spoke of this forerunner, and that's who John the Baptist was. He would prepare the way for people to believe in the Messiah. And that's who John was. And John had doctrine. And the doctrine he had was to repent. That is to turn, to change your mind. Stop going after your sin and turn to God. And get ready for him who is coming, who is the Messiah. And so these 12 men were disciples of John the Baptist, all the way here in Ephesus. And this is the only truth that they know. And Paul wants to know where they stand. And so he asks them this important question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, I don't think Paul knows they're John the Baptist's disciples yet. And he asks them this question. He's probing them to see where they stand, where they land. What do they believe about Jesus or do they believe at all? And their response, every time I read this passage, makes me laugh, right? (laughs) No, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. You could just kind of sense their, like, confusion. And they're answering back to Paul, like, Holy Spirit? Like, what is going on? Now, there's more to that statement than what meets the eye. Of course, the believers, I mean, the disciples of John the Baptist believed in the Holy Spirit, But they had no idea that the Holy Spirit had yet come in this way. They were ignorant of the many truths like Apollos was in the chapter before. They had not heard the complete story. All they knew is that the Messiah was to come and they were to be ready for him. Not knowing what happened on the day of Pentecost. Not knowing that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. And Paul knows these guys believe something, and he's probing them. And then Paul says, hey, guys, let me catch you up. There's quite a few things that you've missed along the way, 
And I'll be glad to fill in the blanks. The good news is that you don't have to wait for him anymore. He's already been here. He's died and he's risen again from the dead. Now these guys had not been baptized as Christians because they were still waiting for the Christ. They were baptized in John's name for repentance. And so after Paul explains this, he explains in verse 4, if you look at that, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what happens is that Paul explains the gospel. He fills in those missing blanks. And he catches them up. And these 12 men now realize and put their faith in Jesus, who was the Messiah they were waiting for, and are now baptized in his name. They're rebaptized. Why are they rebaptized? Because they weren't baptized as Christians correctly. But Christian baptism looks back to what Christ has done. And by the way, on June the 5th, we're going to be baptizing. If you have never been baptized and are a believer, please talk to me. I'd love to baptize you on that day, June the 5th. Christian baptism looks back to what the Messiah did. Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again. We dunk people underneath the water to symbolize a burial and resurrection. And, there, and it's done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the triune God who initiated the salvation, who brought redemption to completion for those who believe in him. And so... This is what the disciples of John do. On hearing this, they were baptized, which the missing element there is that they believed first. No one in the Bible was ever baptized without believing. And after hearing Paul, they believed and received baptism like because they are now Christians. Look at verse 6. After they were baptized, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying and there were about 12 men in all. So they believe in Jesus, they get baptized, but then Paul does something very interesting. He lays his hands on them and it is at that moment that they are filled with the Holy Spirit and the evidence of that is they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, as we have said many times as we go through the book of Acts, some of the things that we read in the book of Acts are not necessarily normative for the Christian life. Meaning, just because you read something in Acts doesn't mean that it is still for today. For example, these believers did not receive the Holy Spirit until Paul touched them. That doesn't happen today. People receive the Holy Spirit when they believe. We're going to see that in a few minutes through in the scriptures. And when they were saved and baptized and received the Holy Spirit, they also began speaking in tongues and prophesying. 
The tongues of the New Testament period were not the gibberish you often hear people speak of today. You know, I'm sure you've seen the TV preacher do it, right? And he starts humming, 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 and you don't know what in the world he's saying. The word tongues literally means languages. It's a known language. The Greek word is... uh, exactly of that, of of a known language. It was used in the book of Acts for evangelism. We see in the book of Acts chapter 2, as they were preaching the gospel and filled, everyone was able to understand in their own language. It was also used in the book of Acts as a sign. It was a sign for unbelieving Jews. Who were the unbelieving Jews in this moment? The 12 men who followed John. It was also used as validation for the apostles' message and mission. Just like all the miracles that we're going to see. And we're going to see some weird stuff. Like next week, Paul's sweat and handkerchief can heal people. That doesn't happen today. That is not normative for the Christian life. Luke is writing these things to show us the validation of Paul's ministry. They're not prescriptive for today. It's descriptive of what happened in that moment. Authentication and the fulfillment also of the days of Joel. And that's what Acts chapter 2 says. That in those days, right? The Holy Spirit will come down and your young men will dream dreams and your women will give vision. This is the days that Joel prophesied in the days of the Lord. That's what miracles and speaking in tongues served in the book of Acts. And that is not at all biblical or for today. In fact, Paul even tells us in the book of Corinthians that some of those gifts of the Spirit would cease. And we see that they have because they have fulfilled their purpose. One of the most troubling things anyone can ever say to you is the Lord told you. The Lord told me this. The Lord told me that. All that the Lord has said is in here. Is in here. The days of special revelation are over. The canon is closed. This is the authoritative and sufficient word of God. There is no need for further revelation. We have a complete Bible. Back in these days, the Bible was still being written. So God was still giving prophecies and his revelation to his church. Again, some of those gifts have ceased. And so when these 12 followers of John start speaking in tongues and prophesying, some people take that as, well, that's supposed to happen today. That's not normative, but something exceptional that happened in the period of the early church for authentication of the apostles' ministry for unbelieving Jews and signs of a different day that had arrived. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, they said. Now remember, the disciples of John knew that the Spirit was to come when the Messiah arrived, but they had not known what? That the Messiah had arrived. What Holy Spirit? We're still waiting for the Messiah. Because remember what John the Baptist told them. Look at Luke chapter 3 verse 16. John answered them all saying, this is John the Baptist, I baptize you with water, 
but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And this is what we see happening in the book of Acts. The disciples of John are still waiting for this to happen back then. But when Paul tells them, you missed it, he's, been, he's lived and he's died, and now we're waiting for him to come back. You guys need to be baptized in his name, repent of your sins, and join the club because you're missing out on a lot of stuff. They were expecting the Holy Spirit to come. So that statement is not complete ignorance of the Holy Spirit, but ignorance of the Holy Spirit being for right that moment. And there are some that will teach today and confuse these verses by saying that you get saved now, but you don't get the Holy Spirit till later. Like you get a second blessing afterwards, or you don't get the Holy Spirit until you speak in tongues. And many charismatic churches or Pentecostal churches will teach this kind of stuff, that the Holy Spirit will come later, but that is not the teaching of the Scriptures. That is not the teaching of the Scriptures whatsoever. It's just not true. You don't get the Holy Spirit at some future date when you learn so much Bible information or you are totally submitted or whatever. You receive the Holy Spirit at your salvation. Remember, what did Paul just say? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when? When you, when? Believed. That's the question he asked them. Did you receive the whole? Paul is probing and assuming that they had already believed in the Lord Jesus, but they hadn't, which is why they didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon belief. And here's more proof. Paul even tells the, uh, the Romans in Romans chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's speaking to Christians here. The flesh means the body. Speaking of their spiritual lives. That you are in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Now listen to what he says here. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ. Does not belong to him. It is impossible. To be in Christ. And without the Holy Spirit. It's just an impossibility. If you are in Christ, if you were a Christian, you belong to him. You've been redeemed. You've been adopted. You've been forgiven. You've been made a part of the bride. And you've been given the Holy Spirit as proof. And Paul simply says here that anyone who does not have the Spirit doesn't belong to him. It is impossible to be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. You don't get to graduate to another part of sainthood later. And then get the Holy Spirit when you reach Christianity 2.0. Or finish Christianity 101. No. The moment you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. And we don't even need to ask this question anymore. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Because the answer is, if they believe, then the answer is yes. And no one who truly believes doesn't have the spirit it's impossible to say i'm born again 
but I don't have the Holy Spirit. That's like saying this. I'm alive, but I just don't breathe. Well, if you are alive, you are breathing. If you're not breathing, then you are dead. And there you have other issues. Uh, how can you be alive and not breathe? And the fact that you just talked tells me that you have breath because we can't talk without breathing. The very words we speak go, it's air going through our vocal cords, coming out of our mouths. You can't talk without breathing. You can't live without breathing. And you can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit from day one. In fact, the word spirit in the Greek is the word pneuma. And it means breath. The same word for spirit is the word breath. It's really fascinating if you think about it. The moment we are born, we begin to breathe our first breath. The doctor sees us. He slaps us on the behind. He says, yep, the baby is breathing. The baby is alive. Right? The moment we are born again, we receive our spiritual breath. The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that quickens us, that makes us alive. Who were we before the Spirit, before we were saved? We were dead and lost in our trespasses and sins. We were dead, unable to serve God, to love God, to obey God. We were slaves to sin. But now that we have believed and God has made us alive, why are we alive? Because from that very millisecond that you believed, God breathed his breath in you, and that's his Holy Spirit. It's fascinating how that word means breath. In the Old Testament, ruah is the word for spirit. It could also mean wind or air. Very, very interesting. I, I, several years ago, I wrote a book for our church if you're newer to the church, you may not have it or read it. It's available for free in the hallway. Please pick it up. It's called Breath Upon Breath. It's a daily devotional that teaches you who the Holy Spirit is and why we need him every day. So simply, what does Paul say here? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The reason you are a Christian is because you are no longer the same person. I was, before I was saved, I was Dan, a sinner lost in my sins, dead, spiritually dead. But the moment that God's grace awoke my heart and took the blinders off my eyes to see my sin and to see the glory of Christ, God breathed his breath in me. Paul also says that in continuing on in chapter 8 and verse 10, he says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life 
to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. To separate a born-again Christian from the spirit is like separating a person from their breath. It's impossible. And listen closely. There will be some people who will teach that you need more of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is a false doctrine. You don't need more of the Holy Spirit. God has given you all you will ever need the moment you believe. Every moment of your life is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The question is not whether you have enough of the Holy Spirit. It's whether the Holy Spirit has enough of you. And that's why we are called to obey the simple command to be filled with the Spirit. And that's a completely different thing than being saved or receiving a second blessing. As a matter of fact, the word filled literally is the equivalent to wind blowing on a sailboat cloth, the sail thing. Yeah, the sail. And as the wind blows on the sail, it gives the energy for the boat to move across the water. The wind fills the sails and energizes the boat. That's the same concept of being filled with the Spirit, right? The sailcloth is in the air. It has all the oxygen already. It has all the air it needs. But to be filled with the Spirit, for the Spirit to fill that cloth and to push, that's the energy we need to live this Christian life. Those are two totally different things, to be filled with the Spirit and to be saved and receive the Spirit. Two different things teachings. Paul says this to the Ephesians in chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, that's important, remember that. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So according to verse 13 and 14 here, what does Paul say when we receive the Holy Spirit? Someone tell me. It's the very first phrase of verse 13. What is it? Okay, when did we receive the Holy Spirit? When you were, put up verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Again, when do you get the Holy Spirit? When you believe. When you believe. It's pretty clear. You hear the gospel, you believe, you get the Spirit. And then, this is beautiful. Paul tells us that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That when we believe, when we become a Christian, we are sealed. The word sealed is fascinating. Back in those days, when the king or a high official wanted to issue a command or a decree, 
or issue a new law, he would imprint his seal with his signet ring onto the paper to authenticate that it was genuinely from him. Today, we would probably go to a notary and to have the notary look at our signature, look at our ID, to authenticate that is really us who are signing that paper or that document. Paul says the same word as we authenticate a signature or a paper that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? When we believe, the moment we believe God gives us this Holy Spirit to authenticate that we truly are his. That we really are in Christ. We have God's stamp of authenticity in him. And if you have the Holy Spirit, there will be fruit in your life. There will be evidence in your life. You'll have conviction over sin. If you could live your whole life and sin all you want and it doesn't affect you at all, then there's probably something missing in your life because the Holy Spirit cannot and will not let a true Christian live like that without bringing you to conviction and to remembrance that you need to repent of your sin. If you have no desire for the word of God, if you have no desire to worship him, it's probably a sign that you don't have the Holy Spirit, which means you were never saved to begin with. If you have to be dragged and kicked to come to church every Sunday, if you have to, if you have to be pressured to even read your Bible because you have no desire for it, it's probably something missing in your life, and that's your salvation, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. You don't need to teach a baby to want his mother's milk, do you? Babies are born by nature to crave their mother's milk and to eat. You don't have to teach a baby to be hungry. At least my mom didn't have to teach me. And neither do you need to train or teach a Christian to be hungry for God's word, to be hungry for worship. Why? Because the moment you believe the old you wouldn't have done that, but the new you in Christ filled with the spirit creates these desires, changes your affections and causes these things to be true in your life. The Holy Spirit is the seal. It's the stamp of authenticity. And there's many different things and evidences that we could see. The fruit of the Spirit. There's nine fruit of the Spirit that are mentioned in Galatians. that shows us what a Spirit-indwelt life looks like. Who else does Paul say the... What else does Paul say that the Holy Spirit is here? Who is the Holy Spirit? He's not only the seal, he's also the guarantee the guarantee of our inheritance. What inheritance? Their inheritance in context in Ephesians 1 is eternal life. What God has promised you is eternal life and to be with him forever. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we receive it. He is the guarantee that God keeps his word. If God has given you his Holy Spirit, that means your salvation is true. And that the day you die, you don't ever have to worry about going to heaven. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are guaranteed. You cannot lose it. You cannot lose your salvation. Why? God has sealed you. You're mine. 
And he's given you his guarantee. Here's a way to understand this word guarantee. Hey, have you ever bought a home before? Or tried to buy a home? You're probably having a difficult time lately. When you try to buy a home, you make a contract and you put down what? An earnest money deposit. The earnest money deposit is your assurance to the seller that your contract, your offer is legitimate, that you mean business, that you are really willing to put up this money. If not, you're going to lose it if you don't keep your word and go through the end of the contract and buy the house. The Greek word for guarantee is the word deposit. It's the same concept of an earnest money deposit. So how does God give us assurance that we belong to him? First, he seals us. Here's my stamp of authenticity. You belong to me. And then he gives you his spirit to remind you as you live your life that, wait a minute, am I going to go to heaven when I die? Is God going to change his mind about me? God gives you his earnest money deposit, and that's his Holy Spirit. And God will not give up on his spirit. God will not give up on Christ, and for him to do so would be to give up on himself. He is not going to revoke his promise to you. God has given us his spirit to prove that we're his, to authenticate that we belong to him. <laughs> Let me show you one more. What we're doing is seeing different things, different verses in the Bible that show that we get the Holy Spirit when we believe. Look at verse 37 of John chapter 7. John seven thirty-seven. Here's Jesus speaking. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In John chapter 7, Jesus had not died and risen from the dead. His disciples believed in him, and those people, others believed in him. They didn't have the Holy Spirit then. That was a future thing. But when Jesus died and rose again on the day of Pentecost, everything changed. And here, Jesus equates the reception of the Spirit to belief and faith in him. And so, these disciples of John are proven that they truly believe. Why? Paul lays his hand on them, and they bear fruit of the Spirit for that day. Speaking in tongues and prophesying again that is not today, that was then. That was then. So Paul moves on. Let's go back to Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. He's in Ephesus here, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, 
he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So what does Paul do? He takes those 12 men who are now new believers in Jesus Christ. They've now been baptized, obeying the command of the Lord. What does Paul instantly make them do? Hey, now that you're on team Jesus, let's go tell other people about him. That's what a believer does. That's what a believer does. We obey the mission and call of our Savior. He takes those 12 brand new Christ followers. They go into the Jewish synagogue and for three months tell them the truth. Showing them from the scriptures, persuading them, reasoning with them about the ways of the kingdom. And of course, not everyone believes, do they? After three months, some people have had it with Paul, like normally happens around his life. And some people became stubborn. They don't want to hear it anymore. They continued in unbelief. And they began to speak evil of the way. Interesting what term here, the way. What is the way? The way is what the church was referred to in the first century. Oh, those are people of the way. The way. Why were they called the way? Because here's Paul and these disciples telling everyone, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we belong to him. If you want to be saved, repent of your sins, and believe in him, he's the only way to God the Father. And so people started saying, oh, don't, just ignore them, those Christians, people of the way. And that's what happened. They began speaking evil of the way before the congregation, this group of Christians. And so Paul, like he always does, shakes the dust off his feet and moves on. He withdrew himself from them, took the disciples with him, those of John the Baptist, now disciples of Jesus, and he reasoned elsewhere, and he goes to the Hall of Tyrannus, which was a place of debate and lecturing. And he goes there and spends a lot of time there. Look at verse 10, how long? He's in the Hall of Tyrannus preaching Christ and debating people about Jesus for two years. Two years. He now has spent three years in Ephesus. This continued for two years, every day, so that, listen to this, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Luke, if you can, pull up, a, if you can pull up that map quickly. I don't have it in the slides there, but down below you should be able to pull it up. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Can you imagine? They were so faithful. They were so faithful. There's where Ephesus is. Well, that's the wrong map, but that's okay. Ephesus is right there in the middle. That whole region where they are is the Roman colony, Roman province of Asia. It's huge. We're talking thousands and thousands and thousands. Paul was so faithful. And what he did is he trained up men, these disciples of John. And you know what he did? He sent them out. 
Paul himself didn't tell every person in this area about Jesus. He trained up others, showed them how to share Christ, and then he sent them out. So that there wasn't a single person in that whole Roman province, and it was huge. We're talking like the country of Turkey, huge. A whole country. Not a single person did not hear the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Wow. What would that look like if that happened here? What, what, what would it look like if instead of being content and just showing up on Sunday morning, that we were so passionate to share Christ during the week? With our friends and neighbors and family members, all. And what would it look like for all of Manatee County to hear the word of the Lord. Not one person can do it. Maybe not even one church can do it, depending on what size the church is and a given amount of time. But Paul focused on disciples making disciples who made disciples. He trained up these 12, he sent them out. And those 12 men trained others and they trained others so that they kept going into the cities, into the towns, into the synagogues, Preaching the word of the Lord. Oh, church, may no one go to hell in Bradenton because we have failed to tell them. May no one have an excuse. It's no excuse anyway. They stand guilty and will receive judgment from God. But like as, Spar- as Charles Spurgeon said, If they go to hell, let them climb over our dead bodies without us trying to do all that we can in the name of the Lord through the power of the gospel to tell everyone we can about Jesus. In the hallway, we have a track rack filled with different tracks. Some are Spanish, some are English, different kinds of ways it's even if you give someone a track, do so. You never know where that conversation will lead. What a, what a testimony that at one point, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That takes faithfulness from God's people. It takes a commitment to mission, a commitment to be passionate about sharing him knowing that Christ will save whom he will save. And they do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus promised, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. And how are they witnesses? By the power that has come upon them. The breath of God that lives inside of them. The wind that pushes the sailcloth of our lives for his glory.
Oh, Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when we come to that statement, I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Now, that's probably true of most Baptists. (laughs) That's usually what others say about us. But let that not be true. We know who the Holy Spirit is. We must have a biblical doctrine and understanding of him. But let us not be ignorant of how we need him every day of our lives. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us as we look at your word. Thank you for the seal you have placed upon us when we have believed through your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for guaranteeing our inheritance, our salvation by your deposit of him into our lives. Because we have him, he bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I pray that you would empower us today to know who the Holy Spirit is, that we would worship him accurately, that we would know the truth about what the Bible says about him, and that we may be bold and faithful to live this life that you've called us to live in holiness, in fear and in trembling of a holy God. And Lord, with a passion in the Spirit's power to make bold men and women and children who are missionaries here in Manatee County. So that, Lord, my prayer that one day, and I know, Lord, I know it's such a, such a huge goal. Such a, well, what a worthy goal it is. It seems like an impossible task, an impossible goal. But Lord, if you did it in Asia, you can do it here. May you, uni- may you unify the gospel preaching churches in Bradenton so that we all live on mission, so that there's not one person in our whole area that has not heard the gospel. Open doors, open hearts, empower your people to go. Maybe there's someone struggling here today, whether they're struggling over the assurance of their salvation, and they really are a Christian. Give them peace and hope, confidence about what you're doing in them to show that. Or maybe there's others in here who, they're not Christians. They don't have the Holy Spirit, they Lord, you've convicted them today about trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. They're getting this matter squared away. Believing in him. Jesus Christ, who died and rose again from the dead. Help us, God. Help us to know you. Help us to serve you. Help us to be on mission. and Live this Christian life the way you've called us to live it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and sing a closing hymn together. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning. We'll see you tonight at 530. Help us with the tables and chairs if you're able. Let's sing.